Welcome to All Things Erie from Erie PA. I'm Kathy, your host, and before we begin, I would like you to take a listen to something. If you're really into true crime, you might like this. Hi, I'm Christine, and I'd like to introduce you to the True Crime Files podcast, a bi-weekly podcast that focuses on mysterious disappearances and unsolved murders. Every two weeks, we'll be releasing an episode that'll help you get to know a case really well without having to invest a lot of your time. Derived from the articles upon the True Crime Files website, you'll find that our show covers a diversity of victims and perspectives. You'll probably also notice that our episodes are narrated by Scott Fuller from the Frozen Truth and Status Pending Podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to the True Crime Files today so that you never miss an episode. Thanks so much for listening, being a part of our true crime community, and helping to shine a light on cases that might otherwise be overlooked or underreported. Thank you, Christine and Scott. That was a great promo. Now, before we begin this week's episode, I want to clarify about last week. Within my research about Epperly, there really wasn't much about where he worked, just that he was a formal, former football player at a college and that those particular players in turn were a part of the trial. I was trying to keep that part out about football. However, I'm not going to be able to. To some, football isn't a big deal. Everyone has their favorite teams, and even I have my favorite. There are some folks who take their team seriously, and those are the ones I'm talking about. When you start talking about football, especially college football, it is a big deal. It has an atmosphere of its own, and people love to go to the games and have a great time even if they're not in the stadium watching. It's definitely something to see and experience. But again, to explain to those who might not get what or why people do this and the friendships that come out of it, it's kind of hard to explain. That's why I tried to keep it out of the episode. Now, how Epperly came to know these guys, whether it was actually playing against them or with them, I don't exactly know, but they did form a sort of friendship that was close enough for Epperly that he felt comfortable enough to ask Bill King for the keys to the lake house. And Bill King even admits that they were friends. And when I'm talking about a lake house, I'm not talking about a little cabin by the lake. I'm talking about a beautiful home that overlooked this lake, and I will be posting pictures, and I know I didn't post pictures this past time, but of the house, but I will be posting more pictures that go along with each episode that's uploaded. Even this other friend, quote unquote friend, he felt comfortable enough to ask if his brother, who was an attorney, would represent him in this case. That's what I'm talking about when I'm getting into how these friendships formed. Now, the atmosphere with football, that's completely different. And for those who either really understand it, you get it, or you don't. And and I know that there are people that have been listening to this in Europe 
soccer. That's all I'm going to say. Soccer. Or for you, football. American football, it's it's along the same lines. You There is a frenzy that is for this. And in the South, football is started when you're young, like five years old and on. You are in football and that's what it is. But back to the case. These guys that Epperly hung around with or would call quote unquote friends or even acquaintances, this was a really big deal. One of them won a Heisman Trophy. The other went from a much smaller college to playing for OSU. And yes, I'm talking about that OSU, the one with a the in front. Even with his connections, it didn't help Epperly. But with the job aspect, Epperly did at one point work at a school, a local high school as a substitute teacher and was still considered strange. He did end up being a general laborer and please by no means is there anything wrong with being a general laborer. The correction is that Epperly wasn't a college professor, but he did at one point work at a school, just not the one that I said last week. In last week's episode, we talked about Gina Hall and who she was, and then who Epperly was and what happened to Gina, or at least what is believed to have happened to Gina. In this week's episode, we're going to talk about how Everett Shockley got involved and some of the things that happened during the trial and after. There's also an interview between myself and Everett. And I would like to say thank you to Everett Shockley for the interview that we did. I had a wonderful time. So there's lots of information. So let's dig in. Now, some of the things that we cover in the interview are the basic questions asking about how we, how we got started and so on. But after the interview is when I will talk about some of the things that I didn't get a chance to cover. Like I said, there was just so much information and I could have easily talked with Everett for hours. One of the things for this interview that we will cover is that this is the first case in Virginia's history that someone would be tried on circumstantial evidence without a body. Everett, I just want to thank you for taking time to answer some questions and be interviewed. Folks for that are listening, Everett Shockley was the prosecutor on the case for Gina Hall. And Everett, can you give the listeners a little bit of your background? Okay. I was uh, born and raised in Salisbury, Maryland. I went to Virginia Tech about 425 miles away. And other than the first summer, I just never went back. I uh, married a girl here from Dublin, Virginia, and uh, decided to set up a practice here. I wanted to be near Virginia Tech Athletics, quite frankly, and I just had no desire to go back to where my hometown was. So... um, you know, that's what I did. I stayed here, went to law. I finished college. I was about six months um, short of graduating when I got married. Then after that, I went to law school. And as soon as I came 
back, you know, or finished law school, I came back to Pulaski County where Dublin is in the town of Pulaski, and I started practicing law. Now, when were you appointed to this position, and how long did you hold it for? Okay, first of all, it's not an appointed position. It's an elected position. Okay. Under, under Virginia law, we have what are called five constitutional officers. They're enumerated in the state constitution, you know, the treasurer, sheriff, you know, things like that. And one of them is what's called the Commonwealth's attorney. We, like Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and Kentucky, are considered a Commonwealth state. I'm not sure what all that means. So the title that the person has who's elected prosecutor is Commonwealth's attorney. Okay. Okay. I was uh, first elected in November of 1979, took office January 1, 1980. You serve a four-year term. Uh, I was elected a total of five times and served 20 years to the very end of 1999. Wow. That's amazing to be elected five times. What really got you interested in criminal law? Well, it's kind of funny because I graduated uh, high in my class at Virginia Tech in finance. And when I went to law school, I decided to go the summer before the fall semester began just to get a you know head start. And uh, I took two courses, and one of those two was criminal law, and I just enjoyed it. And um, then, of course, later on, you take... There's only one course on substantive criminal procedure, and that is what are the crimes, what are the defenses to crimes, and things like that. But there's usually a couple courses on criminal procedure which deal with constitutional issues like search and seizure, you know, arrest, confessions, right to counsel, you know, things like that. So it just all started um, having an interest to me, and then when I I worked for just six months for a small firm after Blacksburg, and I didn't like the situation I was in, so that was in in Blacksburg. So I moved over here to Dublin and opened up an office with six uh, six months' experience, which is probably the height of stupidity. Um, And, you know, the first thing you typically do, like that around here in rural parts, you know, we had a court-appointed system at that time. We did not have a public defender's office, and so I just went and introduced myself to the judge, and uh, said, I'm new in town, practicing law. And I said, I'd like to get some court-appointed cases if I can, Judge. He said, okay. And he appointed the two that were sitting there shackled in the courtroom. He said, that one's charged with robbery and that one's charged with murder. They're yours. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> you so, know, I had to sort of just jump in. And, and I enjoyed it. I just I just liked the concepts. Um, you know, I just, I just did. And, you know, picking up a, a report and reading it, um, in a criminal case, I don't care what you say, it's more interesting than sitting and talking to some banker about some law or preparing somebody's tax return or doing real estate titles. Uh, you know, tax law, you know, <laughs> oh, I, those may be fascinating to some lawyers. And mm-hmm. I understand why a lot of lawyers don't want to do criminal law. They just think it's dirty or they don't like the people they have to deal with and, or whatever. But as far as just interest and excitement, there's nothing to me that's more exciting than reading, you know, reading the facts about a criminal case. You know, somebody did this, that, or the other. It's like, whoa. <laughs> oh, yeah, um, I um, I have to agree with you. Uh, Pennsylvania, they have a uh, uh, an app now that you can look up 
any docket that uh, all you need is the person's name and that's it. And you can look up any docket and um, you can look up what they're being charged with and um, pretty much anything that's on there. And yeah, it it is definitely really interesting. And it goes back to however long that they have been um, in the system. So, yeah, it really right. it really is an interesting um, concept to to look up what somebody's history is. Well, have you checked the sex offender registry in your area? I assume the state police or somebody manages one so you can see if your next door neighbor <laughs> yep. is a convicted rapist or something. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And, and that, of course, it's very helpful when you have children. Yours may not be young anymore, but uh, I have a granddaughter. So, yep. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Um, what have you learned from your work over the years? I mean, is there something in particular that you really think that has helped you? Uh, you've got to be very, in a criminal case, I guess every area of the law, really, you've got to be very detail-oriented. I hear uh, maybe lawyers, what I get a lot of are people who maybe get a court-appointed lawyer, aren't satisfied, and then come hire me. And I visit with these people, and even if I go to the jail, I'm using their an hour and a half, sometimes two hours, going over their background, their criminal history, and getting every possible fact down that I can about what they're accused of doing, and details or everything. And I hear people say, well, did you meet with your lawyer? Yeah, about 15 minutes. Well, you know, you can't learn anything in 15 minutes. So you got to have the details. And you don't necessarily have to have all the answers. No lawyer's got all the answers in his head, but you've got to be able to spot the questions. Uh, for instance, if somebody comes in and they're talking about a, a car being stopped, they're, you know, they're driving and whatever. And like a drunk driver, particularly, if you if you came into me with a drunk driving charge, I wouldn't care how much you'd had to drink or whatever, because first of all, I'd assume you're guilty. The reason I say that is about everybody who's arrested for drunk driving is guilty. It's just a matter of is there some, you know, law in the case where you can maybe get them out of it or have it reduced. So I'm looking at, okay, you say a police officer stopped you. Why did he stop you? Or you had an accident. Okay, what happened when the police officer came along? And because if you really know what you're doing, you know, you can challenge the stop of a vehicle, say. And that's just one scenario. And if you're successful, all the evidence that the police officer gathered from who was driving the vehicle, whether their license was uh, in effect or not, whether they're intoxicated or not, uh, all that goes out the window. The state is left with no evidence, basically. And that's one thing that's fun about criminal law is that if you know what you're doing, and I see so many lawyers that don't really seem to be, um, I'm always looking for that constitutional issue because it can make a case go away even when the facts may be overwhelming against the person. Um, I had a, you don't mind me just rambling a little bit. I had a fellow come in here one time where he was charged with DUI in possession of a concealed weapon. And when he told me what happened, I just sort of laughed and he thought, what's funny. And he had been going down the road and his car had been tailgating him. And he finally pulled off of this other road. And when he did, he rolled his window down and he flipped the person off. And the person was a police officer in his private car and he slipped, he swung right around. Uh, this rather large mouth of this other road, and he got out, and he had his uh, gun, 
on his side and said, uh, you effed with the wrong person, you're going to jail, you know, you sit right there and blah, blah, blah. Then he proceeded to make, you know, call in and then he went over and got him out and so forth. Well, the guy stopped on his own, so you don't have a seizure at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, a seizure's got to be by police action. But when the officer, you know, basically referenced his gun and you asked with the wrong person and you're going to jail. Well, he has then detained you, which is, you know, a detention is a seizure. And under the fourth amendment, all seizures and searches have to be considered reasonable. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so this guy flipped the officer off, which may be offensive, but it's not illegal. So when the officer swung back in there and did all those things, he had no legal justification at all to do what he did right. he should have just driven on and said well what a jerk you know or something and, exactly uh, and so you know that case went away i mean the officer had no justification to do that and you know it's just that's what you're looking for in cases i had a case just recently uh where a public defender was involved the guy was charged with some drug offenses which under state law if convicted his charge carried either 22 or 23 years mandatory minimum sentence Wow! and there's no parole in virginia so you if you get 22 years you go sit and serve every day of the 22 years okay Mm -hmm. and the mother i had some deals with her and her daughter before and they thought the world of me for some reason i don't know and they decided to come hire me and the prosecutor had actually out of humanity reduced the demand to five years and he had a sister who probably should have kept her mouth shut in the way but said i wouldn't take that i think there's a problem with the stop of the vehicle blah 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 so he gets there on the day he's supposed to plead guilty he decides not to pisses the prosecutor off Uh, she withdraws the offer and everything she later reinstated it but the fan the mother came and hired me and I charged a pretty good sum of money if somebody was in a mandatory prison term of 22 years. Wow. And uh, the, the public defender hadn't done a bad job. They, she had filed a motion to suppress evidence based on a couple of things. Well, what, when I read through the report and she told the public defenders, well, if they go sh- hire Shockley, five years is it. I'm not doing any better. And when I read through the report, I saw something, again, I saw an issue. I didn't have an answer necessarily, but it was when this guy was stopped and it was legitimate to stop him. It was legitimate to arrest him because a warrant was outstanding. They put him in the back of a police car. But while he's sitting there handcuffed, they came up and say, is it okay if I search your vehicle or something? And so I'm thinking, is that something covered by Miranda? And I looked up and sure enough, it is, you know, when they ask you a question that, you know, is to elicit an incriminating response. It's covered by Miranda. So I filed a amended motion to amend without going into all the legalities. I got this email from the prosecutor one day and I read it. And I thought, wait a minute. I printed it off because I wanted to hold it and read it because I couldn't believe what it said. But she was then offering um, convictions of this, that, and the other, you know, lesser offenses with six months to serve. So, you know, just finding that little tidbit scared them enough that they were willing to reduce. Of course, I grabbed my client by the ears. I say, look, I don't walk on water. You know, I've made a good argument. No no saying the judge is going to buy it. Right. You know, so you better take this six months and be happy with it. So, but obviously six months beats the hell out of 22 years. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one thing I learned about being in court. You keep your mouth closed. 
Uh-huh. You let oh, your lawyer do talking. Listen, you could probably take state prison population or federal too, whether it be Pennsylvania or Virginia, and you I, it's just a rough guess, but I'd say you could cut loose um, at least a quarter of the inmate population if uh, those inmates had kept their mouth shut. They probably mm-hmm. would have never been convicted. I got a guy serving three life terms, and the only reason we got him convicted is because we got a confession. And the police weren't getting it um, that arrested him. I knew uh, they were, that was the town police. And stepping on toes, nevertheless, I called a good friend of mine who was an investigator of the sheriff's department who could get confessions. And in this case, I knew I needed one to really tie him with this murder. And I called the town police and said, you take him over to the sheriff's office. Well, they didn't like it, but, you know, it's too bad. Right. And the sheriff's investigator came in there and got a confession out of him. and. You know, that's really all. If the confession had been thrown out, I wouldn't have had any evidence. Wow. Uh, but we got the confession, and we, you know, he's serving three life terms. Well, I'm going to move the questions into a into the Gina Hall. And I, and, and, but criminal law, for me, it's a puzzle. Going right. in and figuring out what happened, when, where, why that kind of stuff and it that for me is um why i enjoy it um but i have a hard time with kids those cases uh, yes. are the hardest and um uh, uh with but i wanted to ask when you first heard about gina hall uh what was your first impression about the case well, I was actually sitting in my house one hot July night, I think it was July the 2nd of 80, and making out bills, you know, half disgusted because all my money's going, <laughs> and the doorbell rang, I had a little chihuahua, and she just went berserk when the doorbell rang, and so I, you know, begrudgingly stomp out down the hallway to the front door, and there's Trooper Hall, and I'd known him for some time, and he, you know, was at the door, and I answered the door, hey, how you doing, you know, and he says, well, ever have you been reading about this girl that's been missing from Radford University? I said, yeah. He said, well, I think we have a, a murder on our hands. I said, oh, really, you know, and I was brand spanking new. I'd been prosecuting at that point six months, and uh, he said, yeah, and he sort of told me a few things and whatnot, and uh, I said, well, can you take me and show me some of these things? He said, sure. I had on shorts and, a flip, and flip-flops. And I jumped in the police car just like that, and we went. And he showed me different things, and we even went by the house where she was killed and um, found a door open. And when I did, I said, wait a minute, now, okay, again, search and seizure, because we're entering a house here without consent or a warrant. Um, and you don't have a crime scene exception where you can say, okay, there's blood. we got to you know, be able to go in. But the only person who can raise a search and seizure issue is someone who has uh, an expect reasonable expectation of privacy. So in a, with a house like that, it's only going to be the owners, maybe Bill King or something. And Bill King, I was told, had passed a polygraph. Steve Epperly didn't live there. So I knew that we didn't have any search and seizure issues. So I said, let's go in the house, look around. And, um, uh, that's, you know, we saw the blood spot and I went into the utility room where I think probably she inflicted, um, or the, the beating was inflicted on her. And there was a refrigerator, just a bunch of junk. It's a long, narrow room, and just, you know, junk, you know, tools and stuff like that. And I opened the refrigerator door 
and on the near the the gasket or whatever you call it, um, there looked to be a, a partial fingerprint in blood. And um, so anyway, we decided just to close the place up, lock it, and get out of there, and then go get Bill King. The parents, his his mother and his stepfather lived there, and they were in Myrtle Beach on vacation. So we went and got a hold of Bill King, and he agreed to meet us there later at night, probably at least 10 o'clock. And we went in the house, and then we had uh, Austin Hall with us, two police detectives from the city of Bradford, Bill King and, I, and myself, and I think that was all. We just looked around, and, you know, the detectives were taking samples of this and that and the other, and we saw the genus broken ankle bracelet. There's a, We're on the bottom level of three levels in the home, and this bottom level... Um, is on the back side of the house, if you will, that faces the lake. And uh, there's a spiral staircase that goes from that level up to the mid-level where most of the stuff is, the kitchen, some bedrooms, things like that. And uh, But her broken ankle bracelet was right at the foot of the stairs. And you got to realize, this is 1980, and they had shag carpet. And, you know, shag carpet was pretty long the fibers and everything so something could fall on the shag carpet just sort of disappear a little bit mm-hmm. but we found that and then there was uh we there, there was this refrigerator i told you about in the utility room and we were in there looking around we saw what looked like a speck of blood here or there it wasn't any blood bath type thing um you know just a speck uh one on a, the, the heel of a dust pan uh, so it wasn't a big bloodbath, and yet we walked all around this room, and I can't remember if it was me or somebody else, but we sort of looked at the refrigerator, which was white, and somebody said, looks like something's on that refrigerator. And it was so faint, you know, we'd walked around and not paid any attention to it. And so we got up close to it, and it looked like, you know, there was something on there, a faint tint, you know, on the front of the refrigerator door, very, very faint. So we wanted to get the refrigerator door off. Bill King was a former fullback for Virginia Tech. <laughs> yeah. And this lock on the, uh, the the bolt on the top of the refrigerator where you get both the doors off, it was a bitch. And he finally, you know, had the strength to, to get that thing undone so we could pull that uh, rod out and get the refrigerator door off. And then when we turned it upside down, there was puddled blood all along the bottom of the door. So, as we found out what Epperly did, there was a can of Dow cleanser that somehow Bill King's mother had bought, I guess, before she went on vacation, and she knew it was missing when she got home. And the green cap to it was found right inside the uh, the utility room uh, door. There's a concrete floor in there, and it was just found there sitting face up. We never did see the can. So what Epperly did, as it turned out from scientific analysis, there's a pretty good size blood stain on the shag carpet, maybe 15 feet, let's say, from the utility room door. And he went over there, and this was maybe the size of a dinner plate, which you might serve ham on for turkey or something like that. And uh, he went over there and sprayed that down good with Dow cleanser, and he took this blue towel that was also missing from the house, and he just rubbed and rubbed and rubbed and rubbed till he could, you know, did the best he could to get all all up that there was. But you know, 
that shag carpet was soaking up like a sponge. And uh, so then what he did is he went in the utility room and he sprayed down that refrigerator door. I have no idea what it would have looked like before he did. And then he took that same blue towel and he wiped the blood down, you know. Right. And then he left, uh, again, leaving that very faint uh, tint on the door. And uh, he also left carpet fibers on the door. Again, they weren't stand out. It wasn't like a woolly sock or something. I mean, but just... You know, here and there was a carpet fiber that matched those, of course, in the den not far away from where he had tried to wipe up the blood. But he never bothered to swipe under the door once he wiped the front down. So there was quite a bit of blood that had, you know, run under the door uh, and had coagulated, you know, dried. Uh, he, he just never tried to clean that, never thought to, I guess. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that he maybe did a blitz attack on her coming in from outside. When I read uh, the court document, um, it said that there was like an 18-inch um, spot coming in from the downstairs sliding glass door, like slightly to the left. Yes, um, there were two sliding glass doors. If you can imagine yourself standing in the backyard, the lake to your back, and you're looking back up to the house, it's on a little bit of a slope. Correct. Right on that bottom level, there were two sets of sliding glass doors, just one on the right, one on the left, mm -hmm. uh, but both sort of in the center. And it was this, the left sliding glass doors that, again, maybe four feet in was the blood stain that you're talking about. Correct. Do you think... Uh that that it started there like they were that they were actually down by the lake and walking back and that as she was walking in first that there was maybe a blitz attack no i don't and that's of course just my opinion i doubt they ever left the lake uh excuse me the house to go to the lake and the reason i say that i think everybody was interested in one thing is gold and Gina had been burned when she was young, and I hope you don't put that in. in the, but he was a he was driven by sex, and it was known that if a girl went out with him on a date, he was expecting sex the first date. And many females, there used to be a very nice blog on the internet, and they've taken it down. I don't know why. But the guy, it was called Corpus Delecta. I forget the guy's name that had it. Uh, but anyway, he had a, a very long and accurate write-up about the case. And then below that, people could, you know, send in their sentiments and stuff. And I went on there and said, you know, I prosecuted him and he's still in prison and blah, blah, blah. But there were, you know, a few women on there that said, look, I went out with him and, you know, he won't have sex. I didn't. I realized that it might be better to go along with the program. I mean, you could just tell them, look in his eyes, and this and that and the other. There's like, I better have sex with him and hope I just get out of here, you know. And so it was pretty well a common knowledge. If, if you went out with him, you were expected to put out. Mm -hmm. And Gina, having these bad burns on her side and her right breast significantly deformed, according to her sister, she was not known at all to be promiscuous. She was very church-going, very close to her family, lived out in the coal fields, which is even more conservative than where we are right here. And, you know, she was on the tennis team, and just everybody thought the world of Gina. What a fine person and everything. 
So I don't know. I'm still puzzled to this day what he must have said to get her out of there. Now, Delena thinks that she was forced into the car. Correct. I don't know. Maybe. But we didn't have any evidence to that effect. Bill King testified that he walked out into the parking lot. I'm getting to have a call come through here, but I got a... Bill King said they walked out to the parking lot. I can't remember if it was just the three of them or if somebody else went out there, too. And... Uh, Yes, he said something like Gina seemed confused as to what was going on or something. So my gut reaction is, and this could be totally false, I'm inclined to think Epperly, who was, you know, I'm sure well-groomed, well-spoken, charismatic, um, and, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing. I'm sure he said something like, hey, there's a party, or, you know, over here on the lake, a lot of people going to be there or something. Of course, now, Delana says she would never have left with a man she did not know. Correct. And, and that may be true. But, in fact, she did get in the car, uh, and I believe Eppley drove away from there. Um, but that's my recollection. I, and I could be wrong. But, but, again, if they were going out to this lake, you know, she wouldn't have known where she was going. So I would think... My recollection is that Epley drove her car even away from the Marriott. Um, I, I actually agree with you on that one because of the fact, A, the car, the seat was pull, pulled the whole way back um, because there's no way he, he well, would have. Well, that could have been after he killed her. That, it, it, it could have been, but think about his height and how tall she was. I had a bench seat car. When I first started driving and I, when I took my driver's test, um, up here, uh, before they started doing mandated, uh, driving courses, it was on, um, um, in a little town and you had these huge roadway roads that you could drive on. But long story short was the trooper was very uncomfortable because his knees were in his ears because the whole seat was pushed up it and he had to have his seat had to be pushed up also. So even if she drove away from there, he would have been extremely uncomfortable. She was five foot. So, and um, again, she wouldn't have known where she was going. So knowing the court testimony, and I just don't recall, I'm sure the court testimony probably Bill King said specifically or answered that question in his testimony. Okay. Yeah, I would guess. I don't I don't know for sure, but um, I'm trying to think I have this Bill Bill King statement somewhere. Uh, I don't think it's on my computer or anything. But anyway, I guess what I'm saying is I'm pretty sure that again being as detailed as I am not only in preparation, but also in trial presentation, I probably would have asked him, well, who drove away from there? Right. I imagine he would have. Right. So it's probably the trial transcript what Bill uh, King said. Right. And that's the only thing that I could think of also, especially since she was not that type of person. If she's thinking that they're going to this lake house and um, thinking that there's a party, she's meeting new people, and she's new to this college you know, hey, just branching out, that kind of thing. You know, right. she's a, you know, very, you know, s- social person. You know, not promiscuous, but social. So right. wanting to meet new people, and she's going to be back there. 
in her mind, thinking she's going to be back there this fall or that upcoming fall. Well, actually, I don't think she was. She had planned to leave and go to cosmetology school, is my understanding. Really? Uh-huh. All right. Now, whether that was firm or not, I'm not sure, but I think she had decided to go that route instead of continue with a college degree. Okay. But again, she's 18 years old, almost 19. Right. I forget when her birthday is exactly. And, you know, she's wanting to be sociable. Uh, April was with a group of guys. I don't know if it was three or five. I forget what it is. But she knew a couple in that group, so she knew them. Her sister knew She knew them through her sister. She knew they were okay, so I guess she assumed Epperly was okay. Correct. And, you know, yeah, you want you want to be part of the party. Exactly. That age. You, you want to go to the frat party or whatever's going on just to, you know, enjoy some fun and everything. Exactly. Exactly. Now, can you tell the listeners how you prepared and or what methods uh, you used when you uh, took on the case? Um, first of all, I stayed involved with the investigation as much as I could. Um, I still was running, uh, you know, the Commonwealth Attorney's Office, which was a part-time position at that time because of the population of the county. So I still also had my private practice, uh, but I was letting a lot of that go so that I could be with this. And I, I hate to say it, but... You know, hey, I was 20, uh, not just turned 29 when she disappeared, and I'm new to this job. Well, it's, it's exciting. It's fun. I mean, I hate to say that at somebody's expense, but, I mean, being involved in this was sheer joy and excitement, you know, and intrigue, all all those things. So, so whenever I could, you know, I was out there on Hazel Hollow Road when police were Looking, divers were in the river. Uh, I actually went in a helicopter uh, when the state police brought one down here, and we lifted off from the airport just north of town and flew all over the lake and up and down the river, seeing if we could see anything from a higher elevation. And it's amazing how clear water can be when you're up that high. You know, you you can see a lot of things. Really? And uh, yeah, and uh, of course we didn't find anything, and. Um, and the Golden Corral in Fairlawn, which is just, it's inside the county, but it's not very far from the city of Radford. That was the meeting place, lunch and dinner for about everybody. I may have been there a fair amount of times for lunch. I don't remember that much for dinner. I usually probably headed home. But all the police officers, any of the family members who were here, anybody involved in looking for or whatever, they all basically met at the Golden Corral. I mean, we funded them. Yeah. <laughs> and that was just a meeting place where we all gathered, you know, to talk about things and have a meal. So you would cons- so that that was considered a, a high profile case at that time. Well, it was high profile locally. Um, and I don't know if it became high profile until maybe after he was charged and the trial was approaching. I don't remember. Well, I guess there were, because I remember there was a psychic that flew in from Iowa, probably sometime in July, and uh, he was interested in publicity, and so there were some articles, you know, that he saw that got put in the newspaper, and so 
Yeah, it was high publicity for this area. It wasn't like necessarily Richmond was paying any attention to it. It wasn't like John Gotti was going on trial by the feds or something, you know. Um, but high profile for this area, yes. Okay. Now, and how how did you deal with all the pressure? Well, first of all, I didn't answer your question about preparation, I don't think. And Oh, uh, Basically, all I did was take the police reports that were given to me and just go over them with a fine-tooth comb. And uh, I, I have what are called, I, I call them witness outlines. So, you know, for the number of witnesses, every time I'd come to something in the report and say, Joe Blow saw this or found this or whatever, well, I'd go over to, you know, sheet of paper I had for Joe Blow, and I'd add that on there that he found this on such and such a day and whatnot. Is just several times going over the police report. Okay. And that was basically how, and also getting with the officers as the trial approached. One of the big concerns that I had was chain of custody with signed with the evidence that had been submitted to the laboratory. Uh, you have to show that what was submitted to the laboratory is relevant, and it's not relevant unless you can establish that okay it came from the crime scene. Uh, it wasn't uh, altered or tampered with, or anybody had the opportunity to alter or tamper with it before it got to the lab. So you have to say, okay, Officer Jones found this, he put it in a bag, and then he hand-delivered it to another officer who drove it to the crime laboratory in Roanoke and delivered it there for analysis. You know, you had to get all of that kind of stuff so, nailed down. So you could show that the chain wasn't broken. Exactly. Okay. Um, and I, I apologize for skipping ahead. Oh, no, 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 not, that's all right. Oh, um, but pressure, uh, pressure at that age, I really didn't feel pressure. Um, I thought I was immune to it. I hear other people talk about stress and pressure. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> to me going to trial and, uh, handling cases and, you know, jury trials, it was just fun. That was exciting. I mean, it was like, I, I just didn't have any pressure on me. I, I, I just enjoyed it, you know? So I, I don't really, I, I didn't consider any pressure on myself at that time other than to prepare and do as good a job as I could. So you were you were feeding off the adrenaline? I don't know about that. It was, you know, I was very, I knew that Epperly killed her. Uh... I knew that we had a strong case against him. The only thing that was missing was her body, in my opinion. And that's crucial. But when you've got uh, bloodstains in the house, you, you know that she left with him. Um, you've got all of her clothes found with some bloodstains on them. You've got a missing quilt from the house. And Robin Robinson, who came there later with Bill King, maybe 4, 4.30 in the morning, mm -hmm. she walked up to the railing on the mid-level where you overlook into the den and she saw Epperly coming out of the utility room, wiping himself with a blue towel, wiping his bare chested, wiping his shoulders. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so you had that and there was just, um, we had so many facts, so many, you know, and again, positive analysis from the, the laboratory, you know, we didn't have DNA. If we'd had DNA, goodness knows what we would have had. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, we just had blood types and so forth. But, and then the things Epperly said and did, and, uh, you know, he was our one and only suspect from day one. Okay. And, of course, police uh, questioned him, um, you know, talked to him, 
he denied any involvement in her death. He said he had gone to the lake house with her. Uh, I think he said they made out a little bit when he tried to have sex or whatever. She wasn't interested, and eventually they left. He took her back to the, um, or no, she dropped him off at his house. And so I don't know whether he got into, she was driving or um, I was driving and then we switched because it was her car and I gave her directions how to get home, back to her apartment. And uh, her sister said, well, she was very familiar with that, but she didn't need any help finding her way back. Um, so just a lot of facts. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just put them all together and they just paint a, big big compelling picture and the only thing missing is that centerpiece the body and um and like i say you have to prove death you have to prove by criminal means but when you establish that she didn't have mental problems she wasn't a drug user you know she wasn't going to run off and join some commune or something like that right and again you have, all, you have every stitch of clothing on that night one of her shoes we found one shoe before trial we found one shoe after the trial um and blood stain running down the right uh, front of her jacket that she had on. Um, you know, you got to, and, and the blood in the carpet, all those things it clearly points to a violent homicide with a lot of blood, blood in the uh, trunk of her car. You know, she doesn't show up, have any contact with her family when she, they were very close. I mean, all that clearly leads to the fact that she's dead. She ain't coming back. Mm-hmm. And, um, Again, then you go from there by criminal means. Well, when you've got blood and, you know, you got the body being hidden and, you you know, one thing I never did quite understand the significance of right next to the refrigerator in that utility room, there was some, you know, just some old work shoes like you put there, you're getting ready to go out in the garden or mow the lawn or something like that. And one of them was a pair of golf shoes. And uh, one of the shoes the very front cleat near the, you know, the tip of the toe um, had a little bit of blood on it and a pubic hair that was under the um, cleat. So now I don't know if it was hers or not, but like what is a pubic hair doing sort of held there by the cleat of the golf shoe? I don't know. I mean, did he hit her with that some way? I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, was it something that he just picked up and just smacked her with it? And I mean, yeah, that's it. I don't know. I don't know why he would have done that because I really don't think an instrument was used. Everyone was strong. He liked to get physical. You said there in your notes to me, sort of the Eddie Haskell or what? Right. I don't see that. Um, uh, I don't. I can't think of any perfect resemblance, but I'd put in more towards a Biff Tannen with better looks, more intelligence, and a little more finesse. But he was a, a bully. Um, several incidents have been related to us about, you know, somebody crossed him, he beat him up. He, I feel very confidently, um, hurt his own parents. Uh, we had pretty good information about that. And, um, so he was a bully. And so to me, Eddie Haskell was a jerk, <laughs> but he wasn't really a bully. So I, I think Biff Tannen would almost be closer. But again, somebody who's smarter, a little more finesse, better looking. 
That's interesting that you said that Um, because I put it on there because of the, you know, the yes, sir, no, sir kind of deal. But well, that's right. And you're to that extent, you're probably correct. Um, But from a just a what's really there, it was a I won't kick your butt, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But I like the Biff Tanner one that I mean, that really does show. His side much better. Yeah, Tannen. Tannen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that. I mean, that definitely. He was ready to, he was ready to rumble at any time. I understand. Uh, from the stories I've heard, yeah. Going forward with the trial, um, what were your thoughts on uh, this? Was going to be your first state for a murder conviction without a body. Yeah. So, I mean, what were your, th- what was going through your head on this? You know, uh, cause you're six months into your, into this position, you know, um, I know some people were saying not do it, you know? Right. So what were your thoughts? Um, were you really, I knew of course that if I was unsuccessful, he was acquitted that that would be the end of it. Even if you found her body the next day and he signed the confession, there wouldn't be anything you could do about it. Double jeopardy would prevent trying him a second time. But I also had to look at the number of witnesses that I had. Would I ever find the body? And if I did find it a year or two, five years later, something like that, where would these witnesses be? What would their level of cooperation be? What would their recollection be? And, um, I, I, obviously, the answer to that, the longer it goes, the worse all that's going to become. Somebody might be in New York say, I'm not coming down there, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if you can force them, they, they may not be very cooperative. And you, uh, an uncooperative witness is not what you want to put on the witness stand. So I just decided that um, I, I knew in my heart, I had no doubt whatsoever that he did it, did it alone. And that uh, it was just a a shame that this girl went out there, you know, high point of her life, you know, just finished exams, happy as a lark, going to go out dancing, and she never makes it home. And I'm just thinking, how terribly unfair and cruel is that? Not only to her, but the whole rest of her family and everything. And I knew he needed to be punished for it. And so I was... Uh, determined to try to convict him if I possibly could put him behind bars and so I just decided I think I've got enough evidence again to prove death and to prove that it was by criminal means and that he was the perpetrator so I decided to go forward and fortunately things worked out okay and then what were the thought of the thoughts of your co-workers in, in, in I had office? one assistant at the time and uh, he really wasn't particularly involved. I was handling the case almost exclusively. Uh, he never went out or anything, you know, with the police to, to do anything or look at anything. I don't remember having any lengthy discussions with him about during the investigation or whatnot. He was there for the trial, and so he then became more familiar with the facts. And But I did all the questioning of the witnesses and all the arguing before the jury. I'm not trying to take any 
thing away from their assistance. And John Russell was there from the state police. He was a lawyer for the state police and very bright. And we, you know, I had him come there. And they were passing me thoughts during the trial or a question maybe to ask or something like that. You know, but I did all the questioning, all the preparation, all the arguing to the jury. You know, so there really wasn't a whole lot of conversation as far as do's and don'ts with my assistant. Okay. And then during the trial, uh, how did Epperly portray or present himself? Did he ever lose his temper? No. He uh, never testified. He probably would have had he testified, and his lawyers knew that. Um, and that's one reason that it put him on the stand. They knew that I would probably just get under his skin to where he couldn't control himself and maybe blow up and show his true colors. They didn't want the jury to see that. Plus, both of his lawyers had been clerks for Justice Harmon on the Virginia Supreme Court. And, you know, when you get out of law school, you take a job for a year as a clerk uh, to a Supreme Court justice or something. And they knew from experience that a lot of times if someone went forward and put on evidence of defense, that the court would look at it more like, okay, we had your chance, you presented everything, you know. Uh, as opposed to just the Commonwealth puts on its case and the defense puts on nothing, they seem to think that that would get them a quicker appeal and possibly a reversal than if they had Epperly testify and present whatever other evidence they would have presented. So he was dressed in a three-piece suit most of the time. I think he had a vest on and uh, well-groomed. and He sat there between the two of them at the table I don't remember him, uh, any facial expressions. Uh, you know, sometimes you'll see people sit there and just roll their eyes or shake their head, do all kinds of stupid things like that. Mm. He wasn't guilty of any of that to my recollection. And, um, it was just, uh, sitting there being mannerly and he never opened his mouth in the courtroom because he didn't have to. And so that's, that's about the extent of it. Okay. Now, is there anything uh, that's uh, anything about the timeline that you feel is off? What do you mean exactly by the timeline? For example, um, between the time that, um, say, Delena received the phone call from Gina to the point that um, Bill King got to the... um, lake house and yeah. then in between there because there's so much speculation of what happened is there anything that you feel that's off or is it just because no. there's just missing chunks i don't know that anybody remembers exactly the time but it wasn't like they're two hours off or anything like that they may have been 30 minutes off or something but i think um everything you know, it was established as to when she left, about what time that was, and when Bill King got there, and when he saw Epperly leave. You know, he and Robin Robinson were down on the dock. They decided to go swimming about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning whenever they got there, and they were sitting down there on the dock. And uh, I guess you probably know Epperly came out the sliding glass doors and flipped the light switch on and off a couple times to catch her attention and said, we got to leave. Oh, see, they, no, they saw him. And then he walked off. They never saw, never saw or heard her there in the house. 
Yeah, see, no, the, that's the first time I'm hearing about the flipping of the light switch. Okay. Yeah, they were. They decided that they were going to go swimming, and they, even though everybody was, was going there, Epperly, not Gina, and Bill King, for sure, and maybe even Robin Robinson were going there for some sexual activity. Uh, when Bill King and Robin Robinson <laughs> came in, um, when you when you go to that railing on the mid level where you can look down into the den, you can only see half the den. The mm -hmm. half that's closest to the lake. The other half of the den sits back up under the flooring and you can't see it from standing there at that position. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and they were concerned, well, they run around naked down there or something like that. They didn't want to, you know, create an awkward situation or for anybody. So they decided to go swimming and rather than even going down the spiral staircase and out the sliding glass doors, which would have been the most direct route, they went back out the, you might say the front door away from the side of the lake and the way they came in and they walked around the house and down to the lake so that they just, you know, wouldn't possibly interrupt anything. Interesting. Interesting. And then they were down there a while. I don't remember how long they said they were down there, but, um, I can't remember if they were, one was in the water, one not at the time. I don't think it makes any difference, but they were both down there near the dock and Epperly flipped the lights on, out, the outside light by the, you know, sliding glass door, flipped it off, on and off a couple of times, and said, we got to go. Mm. Okay, see you. Okay. Um, now, do you, to your knowledge, could Epperly possibly be linked to any other cases? Oh, I think it's always possible. Do I have any proof of that? No. Do I have any specific cases? No, other than the Vicky. Coke or Cook. I don't know how you pronounce her last name. It, I've heard it both ways. I, I do believe it's pronounced Coke. I'm the same way. Um, I'm going with Coke. Okay. Um, you know, and I have no evidence of that other than the fact that he was up there. She was an attractive young woman about his age and she disappears found dead in the cornfield and I can't remember how much time passed before they found her. And I have no sh not one shred of evidence that he did anything. It just awfully you know, makes you scratch your head. Awfully coincidental. Correct. Um, and I know we were emailing back and forth, and I know I said that her case is linked. I'm I'm sorry. There's some feedback from my phone, um, but that her case is linked to uh, the Circleville letters. Yeah, and I don't. I saw that, and I know that online there's something about maybe some school, uh, not school teacher, somebody up there that might have been uh, responsible for her death, a local. Correct. And I don't know if they have any proof or right. believe that it's more or what. Uh, right. Vicki was the school teacher, um, uh, or Vicki Koch, uh, she was a school teacher. And, but the way her, um, the way the timeline reads out, and the events it it lines up with Gina's to a T, with the exception that um, Vicky was found. It right is, now, what did you say again? What what lined up to a T? Um, with how um she disappeared. She um she disappeared from an event. She was out with what friends. What kind of event was that? It was um. 
It was it, it it was just like it's called a Ross County event. It was uh, an event that was thrown. Um, it was kind of like a um, um, uh, um, like a fair kind of thing. I I'm guessing. Um, what kind of thing? Uh, like a fair. Oh, fair. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, but she was out with her friends. Okay. She was out with friends, yeah. and yeah, that- I didn't know all the details about that, and I wondered what because I mean Epperly met Gina Hall at a night spot correct and I didn't know whether you know Vicky had just been um, stopped along the road and abducted by somebody or whether she no left some event and I, I'm thinking okay what kind of event are we talking about right it, it, it's it was kind of like a uh, like a fair I'm guessing on this because it's just called the Ross County event um, but she was out with her friends. She's at this event. She was supposed to go from there to meet her family. And that's where, from that event is where she was abducted. That's where they're guessing. Um, and it was. Did they, did they tell you any details as far as, you know, did any of her, is any of her girlfriends with her? Did they see anybody around who could have? No. Um, that's why I wanted to speak to the, um, the detective to see if there was anybody um, that specifically saw him because he was staying there with um, an, another football player. He, he was playing with uh, OSU player right. at the time. And um, they, I don't know if they particularly just said, Hey, let's go to this event or what but he was um he was up there at this particular time and um a month later uh vicky was found in a field in madison county um and the way vicky is described she's described as an outgoing person same way as gina yes um Um, But um, in my notes, I compared the deaths. Um, uh, Epperly was in the area. um, And, oh, okay, here it is. Uh, Epperly was staying with Ted Powell. Okay, now, do we know where that, how far that would have been? I mean, I know it's a suburb of, um, or this town she she lived in. Was it Circleville or something like that? It was Circleville. um, But uh, I don't have the map in front of me. Um, But um, let me see. I can. I'm just trying to figure out how far he would have been staying from where she would have disappeared. You know, we talk about ten miles, fifty miles, or what? Columbus is a big area. It is, but um, I can get that. Well, and I wouldn't mind having it. I mean, I can't do anything with it other than say, "Oh, wow," you know, or something. Right, but, right. But, um, and I, I called and talked to the detective, but I talked to him from a standpoint of trace evidence and you know is there anything at all that you've got that we could possibly you know get something to compare it with with Epperly's DNA or something and he seemed to indicate not he said the body was just completely de- uh, decomposed when they yeah. got there I can't remember how much time passed it was, how much time? it was a month later that they found her she went missing August 14th 1980 they found her in uh, they found her September 17th Bob Bob Chapman is who I called and left a message with. Right. 
And uh, so I didn't get into details about where she had been or who she'd been with or anything like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, um, but I can look those up. I, but she was getting ready to go visit her parents who were up north, more towards the Cleveland area. Okay. So, and Cleveland from Columbus is like, um, oh gosh, I, I, dro- I, I, I drove it for quite a while. It's about uh, two hours. So, depending on where um, Ross County is outside of that, so you're looking anywhere from an hour and a half, hour, 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, in uh, Madison County, I have to look that up. That I'm not sure. But that's that's a further distance away from Ross County. Okay. So, but the thing of it is, it is that like, where her... Like Epley would have gone to by the same token it's not something he would have gone to by himself in my opinion you know i, I feel if i was young like that i'd feel kind of strange going to six bus trying to find a female exactly by myself walking around or something but so would, her car her car was also found down the road <gasps> just parked down the road so it's down the road you mean I, how far um it was found uh it just says her car was parked not too far away from where she okay. was, where she was abducted. So, um, it's, it's like, like I said, it's, um, it lines up with what, how Gina was. So. Exactly. Then you say, okay, how did Epperly get there? Obviously he didn't walk. Correct. And if it's a rural area, I don't think that they had bus transits or anything like that no so no. he had to either drive a car his mm-hmm. car or go in a friend's car correct and uh what did they do with that it's, right you know, I, I don't know it was just and like i said i my question keeps coming back to it, it the circleville letters were going on at that point in time and it, what it was was someone that was calling people out saying basically i know what you did and if you don't if you don't come out and say it I'm going to, I'm just, I'm going to broadcast it to everybody. And, um, there was a gentleman that supposedly didn't drink and he, and he got a phone call one night and he went out saying that I've had enough of this. And when they found him, he was way over the legal drinking limit and he was dead. Um, but, but they're saying she's linked to the serial killer, but what's the chances? Of two people who are, one is considered a serial killer and Epperly, who is there to get away from what's going on in Virginia, and right. someone who his, this MO lines up. Exactly. So, it, it's awfully coincidental. Correct. Correct. But the, the other thing is, is that the person who ha- was writing the, the letters for the Circleville serial issue pieces um, said in these letters that the two people are, there were two teenage boys that saw who killed um, Vicki Coke. I, I don't, that's why they're just, they're, well, they're not going after Well, if teenage boys and assuming they weren't involved, you would think they would come forward and, or the police or something and say, let me tell you what I saw. You would think, you would think, yes. you would think, but no one has ever come forward. Right. So, yeah. 
Yeah, so that's, we'll probably never know the answer to it, but let's put it this way. If we can find out the truth that was in that hermetically sealed envelope that Johnny Carson right. pulled out. Right, and put I, it up to his forehead, yeah. I'd, I'd be willing to stroke a check for $1,000 right now to find out the answer. <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, I, to me, it's just too, it's too coincidental. And when it comes to murder and stuff like that, there's no coincidences. I mean, yeah. It, 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 I mean, it, yeah, it is possible that there was a serial killer up there. And mm -hmm. then, but, yeah. And, Who knows? And then again, I heard uh, anything about this, but Epperly supposedly was living in Richmond, and when he left there, uh, a girlfriend he had was missing or something like that. I don't know if you've heard anything about that. That's I, all I know about it. I, I don't know anything. I else. heard about Richmond, but I didn't know it was his girlfriend. Well, it may not have been. That's what it way the sort of conveyed to me. But okay. um, yeah, I heard. No, I don't know. I heard about Richmond, and then I heard about. And I don't know how well this will go over. And I, I was told by Delena that there was someone from Philadelphia. I don't okay. know. I don't know about that. Like I said, that was that was what was conveyed to me from Delena. So how she got that information, I don't know. And like I said, through my email, um, when I was going through my notes um, and I was uh, looking through who to contact for this case, um, that uh, other person's name popped up and it was who was um, working with Delina. So, um, oh gosh. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm trying, that's why I didn't recontact her uh -huh. through this. Um, I'm just going to honor what I said about Gina and, right. um, and just, and do what I'm going to do with this podcast and I'll, and I will message her and, and let her know that, look, I'm just going to take what we spoke about and, and do that. Um, but so, but I'm going to let you go. And if I okay. have any questions, I will, um, email you and then maybe, uh, if I need to have another, um, phone conversation. If, okay, if that's I'll okay. try to find that that I was uh, talking about and, and uh, copy and email it to you, okay? That would be perfect. Thank you so much. Okay, Kathy, you take care. I enjoy talking with you. You too, Everett. We'll see you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I hope that you enjoyed the interview. I know that this is my first interview in one of my episodes. Uh, again, I really want to thank Everett for his time and it was a pleasure doing that interview. Now, back to what we have been talking about with this case. Some of the things that we didn't cover were what or why Epperly thought no body, no case. Way back in the day when using what is called corpus delecti, which means the elements of the crime or people were under the impression, well, if you have no body, you have no crime. So you can't convict me of anything. Basically, no proof. But in this case of Epperly, it was the evidence of the victim's character or the summary of Gina's character in the first part of the testimony that was the 
ex- that was extremely relevant and showing that Gina's character, her traits, habits, and relationships might not normal might not be what was normally do what she would normally do. And it was the burden was on the Commonwealth to prove that she had died as a result of a circumstantial act of another by using the circumstantial evidence. And the Commonwealth had to go through every scenario that she wouldn't have died or would have left to start a new life somewhere else, which is what happened in the time that this law was written. And back when it was written in Sir Matthew Hale's day, someone could have easily disappeared beyond all reasonable means of possible communication. Say, for example, if someone lived in England and they had a huge falling out and then all of a sudden one person leaves. Boom, poof, gone. Never to be seen again. One could make a guess that they met with foul play. But depending on where you were last seen or where they were last seen, they could have been, eh, for example, Shanghai. They could have signed up to go sailing around the world or just join the British Navy. No one would have known. There was no satellite phone to call and say, hey, boop, excuse me, I have to uh, make an inquiry here. Do you have so-and-so on your ship? If so, we just need to make sure that they are there and you haven't and they haven't been murdered because we got this person in holding and, you know, they're tired of being beat up. on. So that being said, in certain situations, once that person made land or in being Shanghai, they would never be seen again. But once that person made land, they could send a letter if they knew how to write uh, and it might make its way back to England. And I, and again, I might, and it's a, it's a might because sh- sinks, uh, oop, ships do sink. Now, the other thing that Epperly had tried to do was that he tried to get the evidence from the tracker, John Preston, and his dog thrown out. Even though the tracker had a solid background prior to even setting foot in Virginia. And remember, I said that was also the first time that that evidence was being used. And for it to be shown in evidence in court, it needed to be shown that the handler was qualified to work with the dog and could interpret the dog's response. The dog also had to have been trained and must have been proven a tracker for human scent, which the dog was. The court denied Epperly's appeal, and I will be reading straight from the court records. That way, there's no misunderstanding because the way I would interpret it could be something different than anyone else, their interpretation of it was. Now, Epperly tried to appeal on three main issues on these grounds. First one was his conviction was obtained in violation of his right to due process because even viewing all the evidence in light most favorable to the government, no rational jury could have found the essential elements of first degree murder beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, okay, and the court said they disagreed and Again, this is according to the court documents. 
In Virginia, proof of a willful, deliberate, and premeditated killing sustains a conviction for murder in first degree. Thus, the elements of the crime are, one, a killing, two, a reasoning process to the act of killing resulting in the formation of a specific intent to kill, and three, the performance of that act with malicious intent. And that's Rhodes versus Commonwealth uh, of Virginia. Now, the second, the question raised, it was a narrow one without, of course, conceding any uh, complicity in Hall's death. Epperly does not argue that the evidence was constitutionally insufficient to support a reasonable inference that he killed her. One, he argued that the evidence must leave any rational tier of fact with reasonable doubt regarding whether after a reasoning process antecedent to the act of killing, he performed the specific intent to kill, according to court documents. Now, the state need not show such intent to have existed for any particular length of time, and that's Smith versus Commonwealth of Virginia. The intent may and often must be proved circumstantially through, for example, evidence pointing to a possible motive, a disparity in size and strength between the defendant and victim, evidence of prolonged assault, and defendant's lack of remorse and attempts to avoid detection, such as concealment of the body. They, in reviewing the evidence in light of most favorable to the government, they gave a, a, a citation, uh, they cited uh, Jackson 443 U.S. at 319. We may not hold the state to disproving, quote, every hypothesis except that of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Indeed, a federal habeas court faced with the record of historical facts that support conflicting inferences, must presume, even if it does not affirmatively appear in the court or in the record, excuse me, that the trier of fact resolved any such conflicts in favor of the prosecution and must defer to that resolution. Now here the jury was instructed on the elements of both both first and second degree murder and elected the former over the latter and over acquittal. The question before us is whether under the Jackson v. Virginia review standard that decision was irrational. That is, we must determine whether a jury rationally could have found on the evidence we have recapulated that Epperly formed the specific intent to kill Hall after premeditation and deliberation. And what they came back and said was, in reviewing the evidentiary record, we are mindful of that altogether inconclusive, if separatively considered, may by their number and joint operation be specific or be sufficient to constitute conclusive 
proof. Now that's Stamper v. Munsey, internal quotation marks and citations omitted. Epperly urges that even in combination, the circumstances presented here offer no such proof. He insists that his conviction rests on no more than constitutionally impermissible speculation because the case lacks internal alia, a body, or a weapon to prove the cause of Hall's death, a confession, a more substantial evidence of a violent struggle, such as a serious disorder either in the lake house or in Hall's clothing, or eyewitness testimony supporting some evidence of a motive. In support of this argument, Epperly correctly notes that one of the general comparable cases relied upon the state non involves a conviction entered upon lacking as many of the circumstantial indicia of guilt as does his. In United States v. Russell, for example, a panel of this court affirmed a first-degree murder conviction on direct appeal. Whereas in the instant case, the victim's body was never recovered and defendant, the victim's husband, never confessed. In Russell, however, the government had presented evidence of the defendant's ongoing abuse of his wife prior to her disappearance. His numerous threats to kill her, a computer disk from his desk containing a file labeled murder, which outlined 26 steps for doing the deed, his purchase of a pistol two days before the victim disappeared, and his discussion of the most effective way to dispatch a victim with such a weapon, which we've talked about in this podcast. You should never keep anything. But back to this. While in fairness, it should be noted that there are a few decisions, mainly on direct appeals, affirming murder convictions on arguably even less evidence than was presented here. There is, in the end, limited utility in canvassing for sufficiently, like cases in conducting Jackson evidence, sufficiently review. It is, by definition, too intensely case fact specific and enterprise. C. E. G. Wright v. West, U.S., to be much aided by that process. And so we find the matter here. To move on, in on our independent assessment of the evidence in this case, we conclude that it is sufficient under Jackson's stringent standard to support Epperly's conviction of first-degree murder. Specifically, we hold the evidence sufficient to support the rational inferences that Epperly isolated Hall with him at the lake house in order to make sexual advances. That she resisted, that during the ensuing struggle, he removed her clothes with sufficient force to break her anklet, ankle bracelet, that as the struggle escalated in duration and violence, he inflicted such injuries upon her as to cause not only the blood stains on her clothes, but those spattered and smeared all about the utility room, along the additional large blood stain on the recreation room carpet, and some distance away, another on the chair leg, Though that those injuries caused Hall's death and that, as Hall lay either dead or dying nearby, Epperly began a prompt and painstaking cover-up. Even, 
even misrepresenting to King and Robinson scarcely an hour or two after the attack that Hall remained alive and well. Next one. Epperly next urges that the prosecutor violated his right to due process by suppressing material exculpatory evidence, Brady v. Maryland, United States v. Bagley, and the evidence was that the dog tracking expert, John Preston, typically instructs prosecutors to prevent scent items contamination by ensuring that the item is secured in a sealed container and separated from anyone involved in the investigation. It is uncontested that Officer Williams was involved in the investigation. Indeed, he had searched areas near the river where evidence was discovered before he obtained the scent item from Epperly's mother at the state habeas proceedings. Proceeding, However, Williams testified that he received the underwear in a paper bag and that, although he kept the bag with him for nine or ten hours, he never touched the scent item directly before giving it to Preston. Moreover, while Officer Williams was present at the outset of the tracking, the dog did not nuzzle him as he would have expected if Williams had contaminated the scent item. The two-mile trail traced by the dog also included places where Officer William had not walked when he had been searching for evidence. Consequently, at the close of those proceedings, the court found that Epperly failed to show that the track had been contaminated. And Epperly argues that the because the prosecutor failed to ensure that those instructions were followed, the dog tracking was invalid from the outset. Defense counsel's Ignorance of these instructions at trial prevented him from undermining the dog tracking evidence, which weighed dispositively against Epperly. He contends that either of these factors sufficiently undermines confidence in the outcome of his trial to justify granting his habeas petition. Internal quotation marks and citations were admitted in Bagley. Epperly Epperly's Brady claim fails, although the defense need not file a request for information in the prosecutor's possession in order to preserve a a Brady claim, neither does the prosecutor have a constitutional duty routinely to deliver his entire file to defense counsel. That's and that's U.S. v. Augers. Now, the protocols governing dog tracking were not possessed exclusively by the state. The evidence was available from other sources through the efforts of diligent defense attorney, through discovery, independent expert testimony, or cross-examination of Preston himself. And that's through U.S. v. Wilson. And internal quotation marks and citations were admitted through that. Epperly does not allege ineffective assistance assistance of counsel in the failure of his trial attorneys success successfully to pursue any of these avenues in situations as this where the exculpatory information is not only available to the defendant but also lies in the source where a reasonable defendant would have looked a defendant is not entitled to the benefit of the brady doctrine according to doc documents Okay, so basically, they he wanted the evidence and exculpatory information. He they want he's he's crying because the prosecutor didn't give him everything that they had because exculpatory information. They're not going to do that. the 
they will give them information, but they're not going to give them the information that's going to make them or let them win the case. But all that information that they had, they could have gotten it themselves is basically what they're saying. And the rest of it is he got caught. He just didn't like the outcome of it. And appeals are built into the system for a reason, whether we like it or not. And a lot of us that don't like it are or citizens who have not done anything. But if we were ever on the other side of the law on that particular uh, table, we want those appeals into the system. So Epperly is going to use his appeals as he sees fit, whether we want it, want him to or not. As, as it is, Epperly, he has filed his appeals and he has filed his appeals. And Everett Shockley does make sure that he has not been, Everett has written the parole board and, and, um, we'll get into that later on, but this is where we're going to leave it for today. And, and like I said, there is much more to this and we will keep going for next week. And that will bring us to Ron Peterson and why he wrote his book and if you have enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, you can go to podbean.com, iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook at All Things Eerie from Eerie PA. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter at K-A-T-H-Y-B-R-D-L-Y. So if you would like to ask a question or have a comment, please feel free to ask away and I will get back to you as soon as possible. And as usual, my sources will be posted on my Facebook page. Since this will be posted on the last week of July or will be as this is uploaded, this year has gone super, super fast. And before you know it, we'll be talking about the holidays. But for right now, for those that are still in their regularly scheduled jobs, don't forget to take time and stop to smell the flowers. And I say that literally. We sometimes forget in our busy lives that it's okay to take a moment, especially with everything that's going on. There's a lot of stuff going on right now. It seems like every time we turn around, something, someone is calling our names and you feel like you're being pulled in 50 directions. But it's okay to put the phone down and turn off the TV or even the podcast for a few minutes and just take some time and run your bare three, run your bare feet through the grass like you did when you were a kid and just smell the flowers. Remember, stay safe, stay healthy. This is Kathy signing off.